0: Hello, everyone. Dr. Chris Martinson here back with you with a very special edition, very special report. Uh, There's been a lot of questions lately about whether or not we're harming our children with our practices. RFK Jr. has opened up the Overton window, which is the range of permittable, acceptable, civilized conversation and politically correct conversation that you are allowed to have. That window is now wider. So I wanted to go in there and take a look. I've had a lot of requests from you to take a look at what's going on. Is there a connection between vaccines and autism between vaccines childhood vaccine the childhood vaccine schedule and any injuries that is are we harming our children or is it something else i'm going to ask the questions today i am your information scout i do tend to think a little bit like a prosecutor so i'm going to just be arranging the data i'm interested to know what you think about this let's see if i lay the case out i'll let you connect your own dots that's how i roll and then you tell me what you think how does this stack up So where do we start? Let's start here. Um, This is what we want to ask today. We're going to be looking at uh, vaccines and are they real? These injuries, do they do vaccines actually cause autism? Are we somehow otherwise harming our children? So here's the hypothesis we're going to work with today, that there is an environmental toxin of some sort that is harming children. And this is principally in Western countries. That's all I know about. I know about the United States even more. Uh, carefully, I guess, or completely than other countries. So let's start with this as the hypothesis. Now, we have some data to go along with this hypothesis. Here in academic pediatrics, we have a report that came out in 2010. And the title here is A National and State Profile of Leading Health Problems and Healthcare Quality for U.S. Children, Key Insurance Disparities and Across State Variations. So they're going to be spelunking here to say, a, is there a signal here? And secondarily, is there anything we can tell from the signal in terms of, I don't know, socioeconomic status, where they live, insurance policies, care, things like that? So, <clears throat> lead author on this, Christina D. Bethel. All right. Uh, PhD, MBA, MPH. Got a lot of, lot of uh, degrees there. What did they find? First, the objectives of this study was to evaluate national and state prevalence of health problems and special health care needs in U.S., children so when they were doing this to estimate health care quality maybe that that had something to do with the outcomes or or the gross levels of ill health that were being seen uh related to adequacy consistency of insurance coverage covered kids presumably get more care more care is thought to be better um not always and uh, depends on if you have a good doc or not um access to specialists mental health all that stuff so they're so they're just that was the objective like hey anything in the data the methods national and state level estimates were derived from the 2007 national survey of children's health so this is 2007 things have only gotten more dire since then so take this with a grain of salt whatever the results are out of this because this is well uh 13 16 years old so so this is this is a while ago and um 91,642 children aged zero to seventeen years. That's the definition of children in this case. So what, what did they what did they find? What the hell? An estimated 43% of US children, that's 32 million, currently have at least one of 20 chronic health conditions assessed. Chronic. Acute, I skinned my knee, I broke my arm. These are chronic health conditions, okay? this is increasing to 54.1% when overweight, obesity, or being at risk of developmental delays are included. So 19.2%, that's 14.2 million children in 2007 in the United States have conditions resulting in a special health care need. That is a 1.6 increase, 1.6 point increase since 2003. So it's increasing now. Here's my bias in this story. Uh, I am quite taken with what RFK Jr. has said, that his observations from when he was a child and when I was a child, I can confirm for you, the number of kids we had in our entire school when I was in elementary school who would be considered special needs and the definition could have changed was a small handful. I was just talking a couple of months ago with a teacher who had resigned, um, sorry, retired, not resigned, Retired after 30 years as an elementary school teacher. So I asked her, I said, hey, how many kids when you first started actually had special needs? Like, you know, they came with a file and special instructions and you had to really be very careful with them medically, psychologically, etc. And she said it was maybe one in a class of whatever the class size is, call it 30. Uh, I said, well, how about now? She said 25%, 25% of her kids come with a file that requires medications special observation the kids might even come with their own handler uh or or caregiver etc so it's gone from basically rare to unheard of to zero into fully 25 percent of the class so my bias is something is going on so that i'm kind of i'm kind of here spelunking looking for something because in my own lifetime i can tell you something has changed in fact It hasn't changed slowly over my lifetime. It's changed a lot in the last 10, 20 years. So this is the data. So that says something is going wrong in the story, doesn't it? 54%. More than half the kids are are chronically unwell. What kind of a society wouldn't be all over this immediately? Like a starving bear on a salmon run. Like, who wouldn't be all over this to say, we need to know what's going on, we deserve an answer, and we need to know right now. So, let's go there. Let's take a look. Now, this is taking that finding from that study, uh, Children's Health Defense, the website. This is RFK Jr.'s website, childrenshealthdefense.org. They put this in table form. So, if 54% of youth are chronically ill, how does that break down? That's 4 in 10 with depression. One in five with obesity, one in five with suicidal thoughts, one in six with developmental disorders, one in 10 with anxiety, one in 10 with ADHD, one in 12 with asthma, one in 13 with food allergies, one in 44 now with autism, and one in 285 with cancer by age 20. This is, speaks to a crisis. There's clearly a crisis. So the question is, what is precipitating this crisis? And by the way, it may have many different factors that all combine. I'm not looking for a single thing to say it's that one thing, because that's what science tries to do. That's what all, you know, pharma and their drug development tries to do is say, we're going to take this whole plant and reduce it to one compound and see if this one tiny compound, which we can patent for money, is the magic bullet when in fact. It's often what's called the entourage effect, which means it's all the components of a given plant that can give it its medicinal or palliative or healing qualities. Similarly, we might consider the entourage effect of being exposed to many, many, many different environmental toxins and or insults or pressures all at once. So this is what it looks like in chart form. Um, I've got a longer term chart. This is uh, it's very clearly spot the trend. Up and to the right. This couldn't be more obvious. Now, some people say, well, it's because we're diagnosing differently. True. I think there might be a little of that, but that is not explaining all of this. What does explain the rest of it? And by the way, when we put this on a longer term chart like these people have done here, the autism prevalence has increased 178% since 2000, which let me get my drawing tool out because, you know, I do love that. Um, hmm. So that's just since uh, the year 2000 here, right? Right here. It's increased 178%, but, but look what it's increased at. It used to be one in 10,000. So when I said, you know, I was a I was born in 1962, so this is, I'd be eight years old back here. When I was an eight-year-old, it was pretty rare to see autism. Even if even if they said, oh, we, we were mis- un- under-diagnosing it by half back then, okay? Brings it to one in 5,000. It was rare one in one in 44 and by the way the trend is just headed this way so there are very dire predictions about it'll be one in two by you know pick a number year look like 20 30 or 40 or something that the trend isn't good something happened here so what we're going to be doing on our exploration today is we're going to be looking for something that happened so we're right there around early 90s or so something happened and then something really took a jump there between 99 and 2000 And ever since. So something, whatever we're looking for that's causing just this, and this is just one of many chronic conditions. Remember, let's go back up. There's a lot of things. The charts for all of these things have gotten worse and worse. Obesity, same thing. There's some sort of an epidemic, begins about the mid-90s, off it goes. All of these things that you see on this chart, on this table, sorry, have charts that look like this. So the question before us is, What is it? And it has to be something environmental because this isn't happening globally. It's not like the Earth and the solar system are passing through a fat, sick portion of the galaxy. You know, it's that something is happening here in the United States for this data and similarly happening in other countries. So the question is, okay, it's pretty clearly an environmental thing. So what what are our options? We're going to explore one of those options here. So let's start with this. Let's start with the vaccine hypothesis. There are some people who say no, they've been completely studied. We have plenty of data on them. They are very safe. They're very effective. In fact, vaccines are one of the most well studied classes of drug interventions that we have. And then on the other side, there are people who, who say, well, actually, we don't have the kinds of studies we would be looking for that would allow us to answer the kinds of questions we're asking. And in particular, we don't have the right types of long term and combined studies. Again, these things are studied individually, one at a time. So in the 1940s, if you were born in the late 40s, you the recommended vaccines when you were a child would have been just two, it would have been smallpox and then DPT given as a combination, pertussis, diphtheria, and tetanus. So all of those, that's just two two shots. As well, other things would have been different because here we're just talking about the vaccine and the immunological components. As we'll see, there are three things about vaccines we want to look at. One is the antigens themselves. These are the antigens here. But the second would be contained in the formulation. There's two other things in there. So one of them would be the preservatives that might be used. And the other is something called an adjuvant, which I will describe completely in just a second. All right. And then in the 50s, well, a polio got got talked, tossed in there. Um, and so now there would have been three. So that's the 50s. Uh, and then in the 60s, there would have been six shots given. There's the DPT is one, smallpox, polio, measles, mumps, and rubella. Okay. Again... With This is just the antigenic component. The actual formulations have been changing over time, and we're going to want to talk about that because every factor needs to be considered in an inquiry such as this. Um, by the 70s, it had skinny down to just three shots because they'd managed to combine MMR, measles, mumps, rubella, into a single shot. So now it's the DPT, the MMR, and the polio. Okay, so that's in the late 70s. And remember, in the late 70s, it was just one in 10,000-ish for autism in this particular case. So during 1989, which RFK Jr. references quite a bit, he said something happened in 1989 or thereabouts. There was just one other new vaccine that was added to the schedule, and that's this HIV, um, haemophilus influenza type B HIV. Otherwise, it was the DTP, the polio, and the MMR, plus now this hib which is the influenza so that was the only extra thing that got tossed in there and so we're just going to start looking at this now because there's so many vaccines starting to pile up let's take a look at these on a timeline so here is the 1995 vaccine schedule and get my drawing tool out we can see here now we have um, hepatitis b has snuck on the schedule here and that is given by the way way back here at birth, often like right in the hospital to a neonate who is hours old or a couple days old, uh, but certainly it's recommended that um, uh, hepatitis B be given before the end of the second month of age. Now, And that's kind of weird because hepatitis B is either a needle born or a sexually transmitted disease, so that's an odd one to throw in so early. So, But you get your first shot here, then you get a second and a third out here um, by 18 months of age. Otherwise we got the DPT here, we got the HIV here, we've got the polio virus here and the MMR. So really the only new thing that got tagged on here uh, between the HIV and 1995 is this hepatitis B here. So but now you can start to see we've got multiple things showing up on here. And by the way, the formulations had begun to change here because scientists had learned uh, more efficient ways of delivering, the antigen. So you give the antigen to somebody, uh, you put it in in their body, and what you want is you want the body to go, oh, this is not right. It's an invader. I'm going to mount a response. Your B cells, T cells all get together and figure out the math problem of what is this thing, and they create antibodies, and they create a durable humoral response to this. They recognize this thing so that if they ever see it again, they are ready and ready to mount a quick and effective immunological response. And to help that, it turns out you can give the antigen, it's sort of okay, but you give something else that sort of really inflames and rages, uh, alerts, alarms, whatever your language is, the immune system, so those cells really go wild. Now, that's uh, what they give in something called an adjuvant, and so those have been given for quite a while, but um, they really started to monkey around with those and, and play with those and change them to make the vaccines more effective at stimulating, an immune response. <clears throat> All right, carrying on. So again, you know, here here we are at you know, one in just. Guess where are we now? In the '90s. So 1995. So we are now right about here on the calendar schedule here, and now we're seeing one in one thousand. Something's happened already where we see what we think is a tenfold increase in autism. And all we really have to account for it, if we're looking at vaccines as a culprit, is Hep B and HIV. Or maybe it's all of them in combination. It's just a loading issue. We don't know, but it's an open question. All right. By 1998, we've got two more on the calendar, on the schedule here. We've got, um, uh, we've got varicella, which is chickenpox. And by the way, the UK has now decided, ah, don't don't give the chicken pox vaccine because when we have enough long-term data from that, hey, by the way, you could give the varicella shot to a child. It prevents them from getting chicken pox as a kid, which, by the way, pretty survivable. We went to chicken pox parties, all me and my brothers and sisters, we had it. Um, And then uh, later in life, they found out when they started looking at these things, much later, decades later, that in fact, your chance of getting shingles, which is a very debilitating, very painful disease condition, that a, a a spring springs from having an earlier varicella or chickenpox infection that has now gone dormant you have a much higher chance of getting shingles if you'd been vaccinated earlier on against chickenpox and so in the UK they've already pulled back and said eh, not worth it don't, we, don't don't give the don't give the varicella but here it is on the 1998 vaccine schedule at least in the United states um and now rotavirus has shown up here. Rotavirus had a little had a little tour, and then it got yanked because um, it caused something called intussusception, uh, which is an inversion of the of the intestines in, in some very unfortunate children. So now we're up um, two more. But look, look what's going on here. Look, look at the how many you get here before you're even one year of age. There's a lot of very credible research out there that says that even before the first year of age. Infants aren't even all that effective at their their immune systems are are coming online, and so they aren't all that effective at mounting an immune response to a foreign thing that's injected in. So uh, it's really better, many people think, to allow the immune system to develop. It's a very complicated thing. It's got a lot of processing to do. An infant that comes out of the womb is like not quite done cooking yet. It takes a few years for that to become a whole human uh, in all of its systems and functions and everything. Um, the ability of the uh, kidneys to excrete is not quite up to snuff obviously the brain and neural pathways are still developing and forming the immune system is trying to come online all kinds of things are happening to that developing infant so the idea of giving these shots before one year of age is kind of like eh, you're probably going to have to boost that later on because eh, that wasn't quite the right time too early too soon right now let's go to 2000. Uh, we took one off. Uh, rotavirus fell off by this point in time, but now we've got uh, a next one that's come online. So it's a minus one, plus one. And in 2000, where are we on the 2000? Here we are. So we're already starting to see some sort of a big upswing here by 2000. Again, doesn't have to be that it's vaccines. I'm just sort I'm just connecting, I'm just putting these things in a similar timeline so we can begin to compare and decide for ourselves and i care what you think. What do you think? Is it just correlation? Is it uh could it be causative and if it is causative or even if it's just correlated don't we deserve to have the studies that could definitively tell us whether that was the case or not? All right. Um by uh 2002, uh things are really starting to pile up on the vaccine schedule, more and more are just being added. Uh, you can see this goes out to what's that Um, this goes all the way out to 18 years of age so um, here we are Uh, this is the 12 month zone here so all of these everything down here would fall in uh, the first year of life and then we got the second year of life which would fall out to about here right so you can see there's quite a lot going on in the first two years of life here let's carry on um, and by the way, 2002, we are now right here. So a little bit of a flat line there on this particular chart from 2000 to 2002. By 2007, okay, now we're really starting to pile up. We've got a few more added on here, and we're getting a little more subtlety now. So the purple says, hey, we're only going to give these to certain high-risk groups. So that would be the meningococcal, uh, the Hep A um possibly influenza uh the pneumococcal and uh what else is on there maybe the the Hib no Hib is a catch-up immunization so yeah anything in that purple is eh, you know that's sort of doctor discretion right so at any rate though you can start to see there's a lot of shots on here and by the way um you can see that some of these require multiple shots so the Dtap is in 2 months 4 months 6 months and then later on out there, 15, 18 months. <clears throat> so those are, uh, yeah, lot, lots and lots and lots of shots, lots and lots of shots. So by 2007, we are now out into, well, we're somewhere between these two numbers out here. Whoop. Something's happening. Something's happening. Now, this is the current schedule. Um and all that stuff in yellow I've highlighted, that's all happening within the first two years of age. That's 30 jabs. So now when we say jabs, that's important because each shot has, yes, some of the antigenic component that's being introduced to the to the organism. But as well, it's going to have two separate things, which are the adjuvants, which are the immune stimulating agents. Get to that in just a second. And then as well, have these other things called excipients, which are just other things that are in there. So, um, if you were taking an aspirin pill, there's maybe 30 milligrams of aspirin in a whole tablet, but the whole tablet weighs 100 milligrams. What's the other 70? Excipients, other things, binding agents, you know, things, things that are along for the ride. So, but this is to point out that now, by the time you're two years of age, you may have gotten 30 separate pokes or more, depending on what sort of a schedule you are on. And of course, by today, we're way out here at one and. 44 land so um, the question now is does this have anything to do with it so there are three possible sources of trouble which i've been alluding to here one is the antigen itself in the vaccine one are the ex- another is the excipients and the third is the adjuvant okay so here we're looking at things that might be in a vial of vaccine so you have uh adjuvant one you might have oops sorry adjuvant one here you might have adjuvant two you might have adjuvant three three different sorts of adjuvants that are in here they're doing different uh, types of things depending on the type of adjuvant. So they're really there to to spark the immune response. You want your immune system going, man, I don't like this thing, right? You would know that if you ever got a splinter, you hadn't been able to get out, you know how it gets all inflamed and all the pus and that's just angry. Your body's, all your immune system is angry at that splinter. Well, that's the idea here. They're trying to put the equivalent of a protein molecular splinter into you and they kind of want your body to recognize it good and hard so that's the role of an adjuvant an excipient then is other stuff that happens to be in there to help stabilize it etc so uh ideal excipients you know they're they're stable they're reproducible they have no unwished for interactions with the drug itself they're pharmacologically inert um you know they have desired functionality they're very cost effective etc now kind of interesting is that the excipients i was told by a doctor today that are in a drug pill of course those are studied good and hard dose response toxicological studies in animals to find out if the excipient alone has any sort of a toxicity you want to know about turns out that same rigor is not used when the excipients are going into vaccines i'm gonna have to investigate that and see what that really means but you know the the counter to that Is that the vaccine manufacturers and uh, the people who are promoters of vaccines say, hey, look, you know, the whole vaccine is tested. They are tested in animals. They're tested in humans. So, you know, not testing the individual excipients, not such a big deal, potentially. Um, But of course, you might want to in case you I don't know. Somebody did something really weird, like put antifreeze into your into your vaccine, polyethylene glycol. Right. That would be kind of nobody would do that. Right. Actually, that's what we found in the COVID-19 vaccine. So, all right. So, what is an adjuvant then? Aluminum is a common adjuvant. You can see there's some salts I've listed down below there. Aluminum hydroxide, aluminum phosphate, potassium, aluminum sulfate. So, what's an adjuvant do? I've been described, talking around it for a bit. It, it, it reduces uh, the boosters you would need because you have a more robust immunological response. It evokes that innate immune system. It has a high immunomodulatory capacity. It augments the humoral immune system. It's got an antigen-specific clonal expansion, and it helps that along. It helps the production of T-cytotoxic cells. Uh, lasting, creates a lasting adaptive immune response, makes the antigen more effective, does all these things. So we can say this very clearly. When you get one of these adjuvants, like one of these aluminum salts, put in your body, it alone, all by itself, causes an immunological reaction or a response. So the next question would be, well, how how carefully has that been tested? And does it tend to bioaccumulate? Or when it's given, does it excrete out? And when we're on one of these um, early schedules like this, if each one of these has an aluminum adjuvant put in and they are being uh, sort of piling up here, how fast can a young, say, less than one-year-old body with its impaired renal function that's coming online how quickly can they excrete this stuff does it accumulate is it a problem is it not a problem i wish i could tell you i had an answer for any of that stuff i don't i could not find the relevant and appropriate studies i will keep digging all of these things actually are going to be subsequent downstream um uh inquiries by me if if you're if you're interested so if you want to hear me explore these things in more detail this would be a whole avenue to fall down just the aluminum part of this story we could take that and make that an entire episode um as well there are stabilizers and preservatives the first one this is the i actually have direct research experience with this stuff i wrote a paper on it a, not related to vaccines something else entirely but it did relate to neuronal function um and so that's all it is and and uh this is mercury hg that's the problem with it. it has mercury in it and it's a, it's a very good preservative. Um, and uh, unfortunately, some people think it has some untoward biological effects. Again, this would be an entire episode. I could fall down. Let's just say that the United States does not use, to, to my knowledge, the Marisol anymore, although we still manufacture vaccines with the Marisol, but those are shipped to other countries. Or formaldehyde. Um, these are preservative agents that are used to help keep the vaccine product stable as it's, you know, being shipped and warmed or thawed or whatever's happening. You, you want it to be nice and stable. Okay, so this comes from Aaron Siri's substack. Aaron Siri is a lawyer. He's been looking very deeply into vaccines, and so he asked the question here, have these uh, childhood vaccines, have they been adequately placebo-controlled, been through placebo-controlled trials? The answer is, in most cases, really no. Um, And and there's two things that would have to be controlled for in a placebo-controlled trial, right? One would be safety. One would be effectiveness. And you would ideally want to have three different groups running, not just, you know, with and without vaccine. You would want to have the capability of really parsing through, you know, is the vaccine safe? Is it effective and against controls in each of those cases? So we'd we'd really want to know all of those things. And so um, the real issue is is that there has never been a study that asks the question, never, that I could not, I can't find it, that asks the question, well, what about all of these? Individually, I can show you what appear to be placebo-controlled trials, although in many cases, they're actually not. And I can tell you about that in just a second. But this is the current state of things. Have all of these been tested in combination with each other? And By the way, this is not even the complete list. I had to split it. So there is actually a larger list here um so yeah uh at any rate there is one there is one that's placebo controlled in there the Gardasil 9 or placebo so that one actually got well I'll show you that one there, there, there's an issue there as well um, so for whatever reason hasn't really been a lot of placebo controlling going on so let's talk now about other possible causes though because we got to be complete in our look-through and tour. So we ask the question, look, is there something we're doing? Is there some environmental toxin? Clearly, there has to be some environmental toxin. If so, what is it that is causing this chronic childhood illness that's happening now, that's causing this vast explosion in autism, developmental disorders, all kinds of things? And And the question, well, okay, there could be a lot of things. Um, there are these PFAS, PFAS, uh, forever chemicals, they're called, because they really don't break down. They're in everything. They seem to put kids at higher risk of diabetes, cancer, cardiovascular diseases. Yeah, okay, that's all true. Uh, and, you know, they're in everything. They're fire retardants in the kids' jammies. They uh, are in linings and bottles. They got rid of one class of PFAS chemicals, because those are bad, and replaced them with another class. Guess what? also a forever chemical only this time we don't have enough data to say they're bad yet uh, it's pretty bad uh, overall uh, it could be a risk to children from water fluoridation it turns out one dose does not fit all children are different from adults who knew um, and so there's uh, data around that showing up as well 80 percent of urine samples from kids adults test positive for glyphosate that's the active ingredient in roundup that's also been linked to certain lymphomas. I've done whole specials. I've, I've got a whole giant report on glyphosate itself all alone. Uh, microplastics, we're finding out more and more. turns out these things are, are no bueno. And as well, now there's some studies coming out saying new first of its kind autism diagnostic test examines child's exposure to environmental toxins. So it's possible that it's a death by a thousand cuts, that whatever's happening to our children is one of the 500,000 chemicals that are now introduced into our environment. Maybe it's vaccines. Maybe it's something else. Could it be, you know, the emissions from, from cell phones? We don't know. We really honestly don't know, but it's something environmental. So the thing that RFK has done, which I'm very thankful for, is he said, How come, why, why is it not okay to ask that question? Shouldn't, shouldn't, shouldn't we at least be allowed to ask the question without being labeled or branded or shamed or excoriated or excommunicated or otherwise? kicked out of polite society because we dared to say you know this thing that's happening with our kids it doesn't look good what could it be oh you anti-vaxxer you that's the story right and and so here's here's pro tip when you say something and you bring try and bring data into a conversation or raise some sort of a of a point of view that's got some evidentiary basis to it and somebody reacts with an emotional tirade and or a dismissiveness that completely blocks that conversation they're the one that's operating with a belief system opinions rest on facts opinions can change belief systems they rest on emotions no no facts need apply remember if the facts alarm you the problem isn't with the facts got a lot of people out there who have problems with the facts right now i call them data hesitant Right. Um, They say that I'm science hesitant, like, no, 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 you're misreading the situation entirely. I love my science. I am willing to look at wherever the data goes and whatever it's going to tell us. But these poor data hesitant people. Here's some. Um, This is how it's commonly framed about uh, vaccines. So, So virology down under who are big proponents of the idea and really pushed hard this same crew that. Uh, SARS-CoV-2 came from a natural reservoir and were very, very dismissive of the idea of lab leak, of course, because, you know, their jobs would have been on the line. Um, But they are also here defending vaccines, and you can see their bias right away. But this is from December of 2019, December 31, 2019. Interesting time for this particular article to be coming out, don't you think, in the scheme of things? At any rate, they say here, quote, the agglomeration. of anti-vaxxers love to plague us with their pro-disease perfidy. Oh yeah, that's it. We're really pro-disease. People are like, can we ask questions about the adjuvants and the excipient? Oh, you you pro-disease perfidious human you. <laughs> they really enjoy carrying on here uh, wheeling out the lie that vaccines have never been tested with a placebo. Turns out there are plenty of placebo-controlled vaccine trials. Let's take a brief look at how wrong the anti-vaxxers are and in the process create another tool we can all use if we choose to engage the strident screechies um, by the way i can tell you right now these people are operating from a system of belief i'm not expecting to read this article and do anything other than uncover poor evidentiary data and that's what happens so let's go there and take a quick look at this um, they say here this is the main argument but notice it presupposes an outcome and here here's what that means Uh, They say a study without a placebo can be unethical. If you withhold a vaccine, which you know has been safe and likely to work based on all the studies done so far, you are knowingly condemning the people in one arm of the study, that which gets the placebo instead to a greater risk of harm. You may be withholding the standard of care. Interesting argument. Sounds good on the surface, but it presupposes safe. They say which you know has been safe. We don't know anything of the sort at this point in time. Open questions. Science is always evolving and learning. And it might be, it presupposes the idea that it's safe as if that's a global term. It's safe for everybody. Your genetics might be different from my genetics. What's safe for you may not be safe for me. This is just something we learn over time. It could be that the combination of your genetics and your environmental toxin load makes it a very different outcome from me. So the blanket statement, the presupposition here is that like, oh, well, these have already been proven to be safe. Let's look at that very quickly. Um, so here's what they did. Uh, remember the Gardasil study? So so here they they, they said, uh, another study, also an aluminum-adjuvenated HPV, human papilloma papillomavirus vaccine, enrolled 9 to 15-year-old boys and girls that administered the quadrivalent HPV vaccine to two-thirds and a non-aluminum placebo to the other third. And children were followed up for 18 months, they said here. Um, quote, down at the bottom, yellow. There were five serious adverse events reported in the vaccine group over the 18 months follow-up, but none were deemed associated with the vaccine. I would like to know who's doing the deeming in this case, because um, it's very, very difficult to unravel these sorts of things. And so if it's just somebody's opinion, well, I don't think that had anything to do with it, um, then that's not a, that's not relevant. but. I, just, I had to dig down into this one a little further. So let, let's start here. Um, let's talk about this. The placebo-controlled studies that this virology down under article chose to surface for measles, they did these three, and then I'll get to the HPV. So a comparative study of two live measles vaccines in Iran, a cooperative measles vaccine field trial, clinical efficacy, and then the Edmonston B and a further attenuated measles vaccine a placebo-controlled double-blind comparison. So these are their placebo-controlled trials to say these things are safe and effective. Okay, well, let's dig in. Uh, The first one, this comparative study of two live measles vaccines in Iran comes to us from 1970. Uh, I have to dig way back there. And by the way, this is only a 30-day study. Uh, And all, all you can say is that over 30 days, we didn't really see anything. So if there was some sort of like Like we just talked about with the varicella, the chickenpox vaccine, that there's an effect on that which didn't show up for decades, right? Here they did a 30-day study, virology down under is like, there, case closed, placebo controlled, it's safe and effective. How about this one? The second one, cooperative measles vaccine field trial. This is from 1966. In its efficacy only, there was no safety data in here. It was just like, hey, we gave this shot and look, their serology said that they had high titers of antibodies. No safety done whatsoever. So that's their idea of placebo-controlled, is efficacy only. That doesn't doesn't really cut the mustard totally here. And how about this last one, citation number nine, that third one in on that list is from 1967. Hmm. That's a long, we're digging, we're digging way back. What kind of science were we doing in 1967? Well, let's find out. Um, yeah, this is all they said. They said one group was to receive Edmiston B strain, the second further attenuated strain vaccine, and the third a placebo. What what exact was it saline? What was was it you know, grape juice? I mean, what was it like? We don't know because they didn't write it in there. We just have to take them at the word that they said. Oh yeah, i trust us, it was a placebo. It totally was. Now I think it was possibly a placebo because as we can see here from their own charts where they're comparing these three things: the Edmondston B vaccine, the further attenuated on top, and the placebo. You can see here that like the having a over thirty nine and a half degrees Celsius, which is a raging temperature. Um, that was 30% of the Edmondson B, 14.7% of further attenuated, and only 2.8% of placebo. Um, so I'm going to guess it was actually a placebo because it didn't cause a fever. But how about this little finding? Safe and effective? I don't know. Tonsillitis seems pretty serious to me. Uh, 30.9% for Edmondson B, the further attenuated, 23.5%, and only, only 2.8% of the placebo group had tonsillitis. And you can see they had you know, very high rates of diarrhea, conjunctivitis, cough, all kinds of stuff. So <clears throat> uh thing that's safe, I don't know. It depends on your definition of it. And the study length was 25 days. So again, this idea that we have these placebo-controlled trials about measles that tell us everything we need to know, well we're really digging back when we have to go back to a 1967 study from a Rand that uh as good as the study might have been at the time and i have no reason to doubt that it's 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 fine um or this was honduras honduras measles trial no the first one was was um sorry excuse me the first one was around this one's honduras this is what they're this is what they're saying we have plenty of placebo-controlled trials here's one from 1967 here's one from 1970 here's one that's efficacy only (laughs) not quite what we were talking about right All right, and then back to that HPV one. So I dug that one out because I I just wanted to see what they were actually talking about. So this is when science, this is science TM, trademark, not not science. Here's the study. I dug it up. Uh, Methods, sexually naive boys and girls aged 9 to 15 years, 1,781 of them were assigned 2 to 1 to receive the HPV4 vaccine or saline placebo. I like that. At day one and at months two and six. At month 30... The placebo group, 482 of them, then received the HPV4 vaccine because, gosh, we wouldn't want them to not have it. How would we? We wouldn't want to do follow up on all these kids to find out long term was there anything that we needed to know about this? And look at their objectives. All they can tell us the primary objective. So in your study, you look for certain things. The primary objective was to evaluate long term anti HPV6 serological levels. The secondary objective was to estimate vaccine effectiveness related to persistent infection or disease that's it safety wasn't one of the primary or secondary objectives um and by the way they broke the the placebo group and uh, they are no longer a placebo group that we can follow same thing happened with the covid19 vaccination program right they gave the things you know said oh my gosh you know half people got got the uh, mrna vaccine half didn't uh, several months into it, they're like, wow, 95% efficacy. They broke the seal and then gave um, vaccines to everybody who wanted them. And they almost all did because they were willingly signing up in a trial for these vaccines. And of course, COVID hysteria at the time, they all wanted it. So there's no, they, they broke it. They broke the placebo control. So we can't, we don't have a placebo group to compare against in that from the trial itself. Ah, it's not how science works, but it's how it works in this day and age. So The question, you know, I'm going to ask here, has this schedule ever been long term compared against a cohort of non vaccinated children? The answer is no. I don't know of anything about that. So let's look at this from one other direction, though, about the chronic illness. So um, this is relative incidence of office visits and cumulative rates of build diagnosis along the axis of vaccination. James Leons Weiler had a nice long talk with him today. And Paul Thomas, who I've not yet communicated with, they write this paper. Uh, It gets accepted. It gets 250,000 downloads. It's featured on the cover of this particular journal. And then one person, one anonymous person, at least to the authors, wrote in and complained that they might not have done this study correctly, offered no data, and the whole thing was retracted immediately and a firestorm ensued. And the reason for that is going to be pretty obvious when you look at what happened here. So what we're looking at here is that in the orange lines... These would be children who had been vaccinated and they had in their practice, a practice with, you know, thousands of different patients. uh, There were some, a group of, I think, about five hundred and sixty ish, if I remember the study right, that that the parents, the kids chose not. They weren't vaccinated. I know it's a thing, right? So then they asked the question, well, over time, vaccinated versus unvaccinated. How many of these people, these kids are showing back up at the office because they got something that needs to be looked at like, oh, asthma or um, allergy stuff here. Or maybe, I don't know, there's breathing issues here or respiratory infections or, whoa, ADHD. Look at the difference here. Oh, my God. Um, how about uh, behavioral issues? You know, otitis medium, uh, ear pain, on you know, which kind of, well. That's otitis Media to me. Don't know what the difference there is. Infection other, it goes on and on. Um, they had many other charts here. And so this is pretty damning, right? I mean, that's that's pretty astonishing. So the first thing should have been, wow, let's can we do that study again? <laughs> let's look at that. Or are other doctor records available? Because if this is, if this is true, this is pretty compelling evidence. When I first saw this, I was like, wow. Then it got retracted. So I had to find out, like, like, why did that get retracted? An anonymous and anonymous complaint or you know um objection i guess is the right word at any rate that that seemed pretty compelling to me so that's interesting this study is being they are they are uh, responding to the objection and going to i think it got published in another journal and it's going to continue to be published elsewhere because this is very strong evidence if it holds up and it went all the way through peer review and again got taken down just like peer Corey's ivermectin paper by some anonymous person Probably from a pharma company saying, we really don't like this study. Take it down or we will pull all your funding Um, because that's the world we live in. All right. Conclusions. Uh, There's obviously a clear trend, declining trend in children's health. That much is obvious. There are no long term comparative studies on either single vaccines, but especially vaccines in combination. We don't have that. We're going to have to wait for the big control group studies where it's like, can you find a group of people? who, for whatever reason, did not vaccinate. could be religious reasons. They might be, you know, um, have been uh, scientifically opposed, whatever. And then compare them to people who had been. It's going to be tricky, but I think that kind of work could help get us some answers as well. There's as yet uh, unclear. It's unclear at this point what the harms might be, whether they're cumulative, cumulative vaccines, cumulative in combination with other genetic and or environmental factors are in play. We don't know what is happening but it's pretty clear something is happening. And what kind of society doesn't care for and take care of its children? Not a healthy one. And finally, anybody who says they know something about this is obviously not telling the truth. So it's impossible for any scientist, or they should say, or public official, to state anything declarative about the role of vaccines and chronic health declines in children, including autism. Uh, The science simply has not been done, but you will see declarative statements on the CDC website and elsewhere that says vaccines do not cause autism. They cannot as yet say that based on the scientific evidence that we have in play right now. That's what I have for you here today. If you want to hear more about these subjects, let me know. Let me know what you think. What do you make of this particular constellation of facts I've put forward and some data I'm agnostic. I'm willing to be educated, re-educated, completely re-educated at any moment. That's what integrity is. If you want to continue this conversation in greater depth, come to peakprosperity.com. You'll find myself and more importantly, a really cool tribe of people who are all out there figuring this stuff out together. So thanks very much for listening today. We'll see you next time. Let me know what you think. Bye-bye.